Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum. We range from center-left to center-right. I'm Mona Charon, syndicated columnist and policy editor at The Bulwark, and I'm joined by our regulars, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and The Wall Street Journal, Damon Linker, who writes the Substack newsletter Notes from the Middle Ground, and Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center. Before introducing this week's guest, I just want to do a shout out. Thank you to A.B. Stoddard, who sat in for me so ably last week, and to our wonderful producer, Jim Swift, who also joined us. All right. Our special guest this week is Nicholas Grossman, professor of international relations at the University of Illinois and a senior editor at ARC Digital. Well, let's begin, everyone, with the Harvard agonistes, the slow drip, drip, drip of revelations about Harvard's president, Claudine Gay, that is the drip, drip of accusations of plagiarism, finally caused her to resign this week. And it has ignited a conflagration in the culture wars. So... Naturally, some people on the right, like Christopher Rufo and other sort of right-wing culture warriors, engaged in some unseemly crowing about getting a scalp, and we can come back to AP's kind of embarrassing description of where that term comes from. Maybe we'll get to that later. But you know, it was the typical thing where people on the left immediately rushed to say that her sins were trivial, that everybody does this, that it was really a matter of duplicative language or academic sloppiness or technical attribution issues, rather than acknowledging that there really was a problem with her scholarship. So I'm going to begin with our guest, who is an academic himself, and talk more about what your sense is here. Do you agree with me that this was an example of, do you agree with me that it was embarrassing to see people say that plagiarism is no problem if it's committed by somebody that you like? Well, when you phrase it that way, (laughs) absolutely. Uh, People who reacted as circling the wagons and treated it as if there are these bad faith accusations, or at least, I guess, accurate accusations in some cases from bad faith actors on the right, that means that what everybody has to do is circle the wagons and ignore anything in the problem itself. From the specific plagiarism accusations that I saw, um, if I were a professor, and you know I get these uh, sometimes from students, that there are broadly two types of plagiarism. One ends up being the type that I say to them, you know, you really, I can't accept it like this. You have to reword it a bit into your own words. You have to put quotation marks around that. Um, and But I'll still accept the paper. And then there's the type where it's somebody who is trying to pass off someone else's ideas or research as their own. And that one, especially if they're, you know, say, trying to get one over on me and not do the work, um, that one would just be a, a fail. And from at least the ones I saw of uh, the now former Harvard president, Claudine Gay's uh, old academic work, it seemed more in the first category, which I would say is bad, um, something that is, you know, worthy of correction, but also not the biggest reason here. And I'm a bit torn because um, I don't care who is the the president at Harvard. I'm at the University of Illinois now. I was at the University of Iowa before that. And I didn't really care who the president of those schools uh, is, or I guess currently are. I didn't see them besides that orientation. 
but I have a, a pretty strong distaste for outsiders demanding that somebody get fired. And also think that when it comes to private organizations, that if they want to fire somebody, that that's up for them, up to them. So uh, I have no objections to if Harvard wants to fire Gay, fine, or wants to push her out, fine by me, as long as it's, you know, a legal reason. And when she and the presidents of uh, UPenn and MIT came before Congress and were asked point blank if they thought that open calls for the genocide of Jews would be against their university policies. And instead of just saying, yes, of course, they instead sounded extremely lawyered and really danced around that issue a lot and did not seem to approach it with maybe the gusto that they would if somebody asked about a different form of bigotry or discrimination. And so when the Penn president got fired for what amounted to basically failing at the PR aspects of her job, I also thought that was fine. Um, so just on the academic part, yeah, I don't think that people should be saying any of this plagiarism is, is okay, is fine. But I also don't think that that is close to the main issue of what's going on here. Linda Chavez, I'm going to quote to you Nicole Hannah-Jones, who's, of course, the uh, originator of the 1619 Project. She tweeted, let's be real. This is an extension of what happened to me at UNC, and it is a glimpse into the future to come. American academic freedom is under attack. Racial justice programs are under attack. Black women will be made to pay. Our so-called allies too often lack any real courage. And Representative Jamal Bowman added his own two cents, saying this isn't about plagiarism or anti-Semitism. This is about racism and intimidation. Your reaction? Well, uh, academic freedom, at least as I understand it, does not include the freedom to steal other people's work or words. And that is what Dr. Gay was uh, accused of doing. And, you know, I don't really understand uh, people who plagiarize in the way that she seems to have. You know, it's it's so easy to give credit where credit is due and to borrow the words or ideas of somebody else, but attributing it to them is an easy thing. You can use a quote. You can talk about uh, the person. Uh, you know, it doesn't make you look less learned. It makes you, I think, look like more of a scholar when you're able to attribute uh, ideas or words to other people. So I don't understand how she got in the mess she did. But there's no question in my mind that she was not picked as a uh, an eminent scholar in the first place. Whatever her other attributes are, she had published very few academic papers uh, during her her years. I don't think she published any uh, book length works when uh, when she was uh, teaching, and so I, you know. I think her pick had a great deal to do with the sense of social justice, wanting to have a black woman uh, as the head of the America's premier institution. Uh, and so, you know, when she ended up finding herself in the hot water, she did. First of all, the first thing she did was to hire a public relations consultant who did a miserable job crafting her testimony before Congress. And I think as, as someone uh, wrote uh, in an op-ed, I think it was in the New York Times, the word that got her in trouble was context, somehow claiming that suggesting 
things that were anti-Jewish or anti-Israel needed to be put in their proper context to know whether or not they violated the uh, speech codes uh, at Harvard. Uh, It was essentially too clever by half, and I think ultimately it led to her downfall. I don't think she is going to be missed, uh, and I hope that the corporation that runs Harvard University uh, is not going to fall into the same mistake of picking someone for reasons other than their administrative excellence and their academic excellence. Damon, let me try something out on you. Gays defenders and and a number of people in the media who were, you know, saying things along the lines of what we heard from Hannah Nicole Jones, you know, this is an attack on racial justice and so on and so forth. You know, they reminded me so much of the Trump people because their attitude seemed to be that what matters is the bad motives of the people who pointed out that gay had a plagiarism problem, not whether the accusation was true or false. And that reminds me so much of the Trump people. They say, well, yeah, he's got 91 indictments, but, you know, it was brought by Democratic prosecutors and and uh, a Democratic administration, and therefore we don't have to take it seriously whether he's guilty or not. That's not important. The important thing is we don't want to give them a victory. Yeah, sure. That is a big dynamic going on here. And it was distressing, to me at least, to see and hear people who should know better that you can't defend a public figure against this kind of thing by basically just waving your hands around and saying, whoa, but the person who brought up the fact that something bad happened had bad motives. That's not the way this kind of thing works. It can absolutely be the case that someone with terrible motives points out something wrong and that it's it's still true and bad despite those motives. And that's a kind of elementary moral distinction. Although I would I would want to add that the prominence of someone like Christopher Rufo on the side of the accusers here does really muddy waters in a way. I don't think in in a way of like undermining or making disappear the accusations, many of them verified, of plagiarism on Gay's part. But immediately afterward came down that she had, in fact, resigned. You know, Rufo's there on Twitter, you know, doing an end zone dance. And not only like as if he's saying, yes, I I no longer care about those other things I was fighting for all those all those months and years, but actually my main goal in life is to prosecute those who commit acts of plagiarism. That's now what I, Christopher Rufo, care about in the world. No, he immediately made, I think, an entirely non-sequitur style jump to Yes, she committed plagiarism and she's driven out and therefore we will we will continue doing this and the result will be the end of DEI in universities. And there is I would submit there is literally no connection between these two things whatsoever. There is no connection between Claudine Gray, her academic scholarship, the extent to which it had evidence of plagiarism in it or at least some of it and DEI programs at Harvard or anywhere else. It is true that Gay was a big champion of those programs, and because she's black, that sort of, 
you know, gives, I think, the right a very nasty and bigoted uh, sort of winking uh, gestural implication that somehow she was made president of Harvard as a part of affirmative action program or something like this. But really, these are things that are, are not really even entangled. They don't even have to be disentangled. There is no connection. If, if Christopher Rufo wants to keep up on his crusade to rid the country of DEI programs, he can continue doing that. But, you know, sending conservative journalists out to kind of scour the writings of left-leaning academics for examples of plagiarism is not going to advance that goal at all. So I, I find that like the whole debate is is sort of all tripped up in, uh, if you will, Trumpian assumptions. I mean, you're the one who made the connection to Trump with, with the left's uh, tendency here to sort of want to defend gay because her accusers are, are on the bad team. But you also see it on the Trumpian side itself, this kind of conflation of anything that makes anyone, a left-leaning academic look bad somehow advances my larger goals as a conservative these days, and I, I just don't buy it. Um, Bill Galston, you have been an academic, you've been in journalism for many years. Maybe I'm particularly sensitive about matters of plagiarism because it's something that's very close to my heart. I've been published, I don't know, for 40 years at this point, and I'm always extremely careful to give attribution, to make sure if I quote something, I put quotation marks around it, to make sure that if I am paraphrasing somebody else's point, that I I give them credit, etc. That's sort of a basic rule of being a professional in this business. And one would think, a fortiori, that it would be even more of of an issue for someone at an academic institution like Harvard. What's your sense of it? Am I making too much of the plagiarism? No, I don't think you're making too much of it, but I hope that Harvard and other elite universities will seize this moment to think very hard about their policies, their governance structures, and their appropriate role in the life of the mind as well as American society. I think it would be a real loss if the debate got so caught up in the specifics about individuals that the larger issues get lost in the shuffle. And uh, I do think that the universities, especially elite universities, for a mixture of good and not so good motives, have gotten themselves into a position where a substantial portion of the country feels alienated from them. Uh, And to be more specific, I don't think it's a good idea to have the Harvard Corporation made up of people of entirely like mind, such that in the most recent period, 99% of their political contributions went to Democrats, and the remaining 1% went to Adam Kinzinger. I don't think it's great when more than 80% of Harvard faculty say that they're liberal or very liberal. And uh, I think this may be shocking (laughs) to some of our listeners, 
I think that the amount of honest discussion across ideological lines in Washington, D.C. is substantially higher than it is at many American universities these days. A friend of mine, uh, the late Amitai Etzioni, once said that Washington, D.C. doesn't have a great university, but it is a great university, and there's substantial truth to that. And I'm afraid that lots of universities have lost sight of one of the most incontestable things that John Stuart Mill ever said, namely that he who knows only his own side of the case doesn't even know that. So it is, it is time for free inquiry and the life of the mind at American universities, particularly elite research universities, to be given the pride of place in the fundamental goals of the institution, and that goal should suffuse all of the means and all of the policies. I spent 30 years of my life in two large state universities, and I am really pretty passionate about the need to protect freedom of inquiry, and I'm equally passionate about the proposition that the fact that an opinion makes you feel uncomfortable, or as the jargon now goes, unsafe, is no reason whatsoever to suppress that opinion. None. Zero. Nick Grossman, let's just spend another minute or two on this DEI matter, because, you know, even if it is Christopher Rufo's crusade to end DEI, that doesn't necessarily mean it's not a good idea. I mean, the fact is, here are some examples uh, from a piece in The Economist. In 2018, Berkeley launched a cluster search for five faculty to teach biology. From 894 applications, it created a list based on diversity statements alone. And by that method, it eliminated 680 candidates without examining their research or other credentials. And then they pridefully said that this was great because it yielded significant increases in URM minority candidates, URM candidates, that stands for underrepresented minority candidates, that went on to be on the, on the short list. Or the Harvard Law Review, uh, another example, encourages prospective editors to submit alongside their application a 200-word statement to identify and describe aspects of your identity, including but not limited to racial or ethnic identity, socioeconomic background, disability, physical, intellectual, cognitive, neurological, psychiatric, sensory, developmental, or other gender identity, and the list goes on and on. Do you think that there is a problem with uh, DEI at, in general in the U.S. and specifically on campus? In general, I, I wouldn't say so. I think it's more a, a case-by-case basis that there are some benefits to it that, uh, in general, having a wide array of faculty is good for students to see people like them uh, reflected in uh, that reflected in their teachers. And um, I also see some uh, excesses, some potential downsides. Uh, One of the things I can tell you about being on the inside occasionally of academic hiring, at least say in um, uh, my department and a few others that I've seen, of one of the aspects of it is 
everybody, just about everybody who applies, or at least a large number of people who apply, are solidly over the threshold in terms of academic performance. And a lot of the hiring comes down to trying to uh, adjudicate kind of differences between those or making judgment calls based on secondary or tertiary factors. I think also that with the comments that earlier that Damon was saying about drawing together with the arguments against gay and the DEI issue is that they are separate things, but the fact that activists have drawn them together makes them linked. And so one of the things that stood out to me with this was how we have a limited amount of national attention, and especially in the information age with this cacophony of information and so much going on in the world. And this was a story that I thought was out of proportion in terms of the amount of attention it got. So for example, there was a scandal at Stanford where the president of Stanford had been caught doing decently worse academic misconduct, as in uh, things like faking data mm -hmm. um, in published papers. And he got fired, rightly, uh, but that was not a major national story or national scandal. Some people have uh, looked at Neil Gorsuch's uh, book and found that there is at least as much of the uh, what defenders call sloppy attribution or things that are borrowed uh, in his book and not in others. That is also not a national story. Um, and so the fact that the gay story became a major controversy. It was, you know, headline news at places like, say, the New York Times. I was pretty floored the other day to see that um, they had two stories that they were doing live blog updates on. One was uh, Israel killing a Hamas leader in Beirut and how that could potentially widen the war. What was Hezbollah saying? What was Iran saying? What was Hamas saying? What was Israel doing? You know, what was the U.S. doing? All these other potential problems. And that was a live update. And the other live update was on uh, Claudine Gay resigning. And that these were giving equal billing, or even if you looked at total coverage, the uh, story about the president of Harvard was covered about as much as things like major war and U.S. presidential election, and decently more than something like the Republican primary that is about to start. And that that element of national attention at the expense of anything else, of expense of other things, and treating it like this major national issue that uh, deserved a lot of our time and concern was a lot more about the both media manipulations of uh, activists, people mentioned Chris Rufo, for example, and uh, also of media organizations' desire to try to seem non-biased or fair, which they sometimes define as, well, if we're going to cover multiple scandals on the right, meaning U.S. presidential candidate Donald Trump, for example, and his various criminal uh, cases, then we also have to give equal scrutiny to problems on the left, which means not Democratic politicians, but a university bureaucrat. Uh, that, so that's an interesting perspective. Um, I would add to it only this, that it seems to me that the um, attention of people uh, at the Atlantic and the New York Times and other elite publications stems from, uh, at least in part, from their obsession with Harvard. <laughs> and uh, because, you know, fellow elites and the obsession on the right, there's no question, is at least, you know, so part of it is there is a sense of grievance and hostility toward uh, elite universities that they see as hostile to conservatives, not wrongly, uh, although their reactions are often inappropriate. And then there's also the element on the right where, you know, an opportunity to go after a prominent African-American woman is something that they find a certain, gives them a certain frisson. 
So, right, as like an added bonus, but just on um, also Bill's comment about uh, with the, the balance, and this is uh, related to yours also, is it depends on what you mean by conservative. Um, and because you can find a whole lot of, for example, free marketeers, small government types and economics departments, what you can't find a lot of at universities are people who embrace the anti-intellectual Trumpist project. And I can tell you a specific way that this changed my teaching, which was um, I teach about national security issues. And uh, when Trump declared there is no longer a nuclear threat from North Korea when he was president, and that put me in a position where I had to either tell my students something false. I mean, there is very much a nuclear threat from North Korea. Um, or I had to call the president a liar. And so uh, what I did, I didn't say, you know, Donald Trump is a liar. I certainly wouldn't say something like, don't vote for him. But I had to say to them that some of them even asked me when this came up, and I had to say to them, no, he's making that up, that's not true. And that could be interpreted as, so is that me being partisan? In a way, yes, but it was me being partisan because Trump's lies forced me to put me in a position where it would be against the business that I'm in of the you know intellectual pursuit of knowledge, the truth business, to then go along with the president's lies. But if I didn't go along with the president's lies, I would be partisan. And so part of the problem we have, and this is not one I know how to solve, but as the American right as the Republican Party has increasingly embraced anti-intellectualism, has increasingly built its project around things that are not just matters of opinion, not matters of ideology, but uh, flat out false matters of fact, it becomes very difficult for people in university settings to appear nonpartisan in the same way unless their work touches on nothing having to do with politics at all. Well, I accept that, and I also think there are a great many people of good faith in universities who are, like you, who are attempting to be very, very careful about things like that. But I also think it's true and uh, that you may find some free marketeers in the economics departments and and some closet conservatives teaching chemistry, but you'd, you'd be hard-pressed to find one, a somebody with a conservative sensibility in the English department, in the anthropology department, God knows, uh, in the political science department even. So it, it really depends, but it seems, certainly we have polling evidence from people in, in universities who say that they feel that they can't you know, freely express themselves and so on and so forth. So it is, mm -hmm. it is a big problem, uh, but we're going to have to leave it there for this week because we have to discuss what's happening in the world. And I'm going to stick with you, Nick Grossman, because you wrote a great piece in the Daily Beast this week, Five Big Obstacles to Israel-Palestine Peace. So we had, of course, a lot of news. We had the assassination, as you just mentioned, of Saleh al-Aruri, who was a high-ranking Hamas official, but the uh, assassination was carried out in Beirut. And you had a, a terror attack inside Iran that killed scores of people, and that Iran initially blamed on Israel, but we then learned that uh, ISIS claimed responsibility. So I'm going to start with that. I mean, I, I have to say, I, when I saw that story about the attack in Iran, I really did a double take. You don't often see stories about terror attacks inside Iran. Iran is certainly the, the funder of major terrorism around the world, and it backs Hamas and Hezbollah and others. Iran itself is not usually the victim, but in reading up on this, it turns out that when it is, guess who is perpetrating it? ISIS. I, I'm sort of at a loss to understand why they would 
blame Israel when they must have known that the likely culprit was ISIS, which has hit them before. So best guess of why they would rush to blame Israel uh, is it's good propaganda. It's both a embarrassment for security services, a potential source of domestic unrest when there is a local terrorist attack. Um, and uh, Iran has been pretty good about clamping down on the threat of terrorism locally, uh, but they have long been a target of al-Qaeda and even more so of ISIS uh, because those groups are jihadists. They are Sunni extremists. Iran is uh, the world's premier Shia power. Uh, Hezbollah is Shia. One of the things that um, stands out about Hamas and Iran working together is that Hamas, while not quite being jihadist, is very much Sunni um, and uh, Sunni extremist. And so in that case, it's more a enemy of my enemy is my friend. But it turned out that the ISIS attack, the one in Iran, was unrelated to anything specific. It was also at the uh, anything specifically associated with Israel, associated with the United States. It was on the fourth anniversary of the U.S. killing uh, Iranian General Qasem Soleimani in Iraq. And that was you know, potentially something to do with it, but it looks like it was just ISIS seeing it as a opportunity for a lot of civilians to be in a close area where they're moving around. So it would be cover and a chance to maximize casualties. And ISIS tends to oppose everybody who isn't ISIS. The jihadists tends to target, uh, jihadist groups tend to target um, Shia Muslims and various, um, sometimes what they call apostate or secular Muslims, and especially uh, ones that they connect to uh, US, Israel, or Europe. Um, and then there are all the different overlapping dynamics in the Gaza war. And so just at one level, uh, it's another reminder about how complicated the Middle East is, how many overlapping conflicts and partnerships and alliances that exist there. But it shows that Iran is dealing with some of its own problems as well, and will, much as they like to do about other problems, they're very quick to blame uh, the United States. Death to America, death to Israel is one of the ways that they try to distract their people from the various domestic problems that they have, because they've also had large protest movements as they try to suppress people's rights there, and having a foreign scapegoat is handy. Okay. Linda, we had illustrations this week of two aspects of Israel's political nature. So on the one hand, you have the Israeli Supreme Court in the midst of a war coming out with a ruling saying that the uh, reasonableness law standard will continue to apply in violation of Netanyahu's wishes. And at the same time, you've got members of Netanyahu's cabinet basically calling for ethnic cleansing or at least one member of his cabinet, calling for the ethnic cleansing of Gaza. So, uh, complicated picture. Yes, it is. But, you know, I think the uh, ruling out of the Supreme Court, and particularly uh, some of the those in Netanyahu's coalition, their response to it, I think is sort of a good sign. Uh, it appears that there will not be a move to to move forward with the so-called judicial reforms that Netanyahu was uh, promoting. These were wildly unpopular. Uh, there have been thousands of Israelis in the streets protesting the Netanyahu government prior to the October 7th attack. So I think that is good. The question of what to do about Gaza after, uh, obviously the idea of ethnic cleansing, uh, the idea of removing Palestinians from Gaza, first of all, it's not going to happen. And secondly, I think it's reprehensible. You know, uh, there are Palestinians who are Israeli citizens living in Israel proper, 
And even after the October 7th attack, uh, there was one very moving op-ed I, I read by a, uh, an Israeli-Palestinian, uh, ethnic Palestinian, who talked about you know, how he identified with Israel uh, in the wake of that attack and how he sort of reversed, he no longer called himself a Palestinian-Israeli, but now he was an Israeli of a, a Palestinian uh, descent. So, you know, I think this idea that we should ever look at somebody and decide because of their ethnic origin or their religion that they are, you know, that we should eliminate them. I mean, that is the basis of anti-Semitism. It's the basis of racism. It's the basis of all the kind of tribal hatreds that have infected the world uh, from literally the the beginning of, of, of time. So I think that it's good that these ideas be slapped down. However, I think there is a more complicated problem that we're going to have to deal with going forward. And that is to try to figure out, of the civilian population in Gaza, how many were supportive of Hamas before the attack, how many supported the attack, and how many support it since. I mean, the public opinion polls, I think uh, Bill you know, has enlightened us on those, and we've read about them. They're not very encouraging. Uh, and part of the problem is that children are literally indoctrinated in the kind of Jew hatred and Israel hatred that has uh, infected um, much of, of the Arab world, you know, since the, the founding of the state of Israel. And so how you come up with peace, even if, you know, by a miracle you could eliminate the entire Hamas leadership, how you come up with a solution that gives uh, Palestinians living in Gaza uh, some autonomy, allows them to have self-rule, but ensures that they not continue to foment a threat against their neighbors. This is going to be the trick, and it's not an easy one. And frankly, I don't have an answer, and I'm not sure uh, anyone does. So, Damon, this is a really difficult, devilish problem, right? It, it does seem like something has to change. I mean, it cannot be that generation after generation of Palestinians is inculcated with such passionate Jew hatred year after year, and then expected to sit down at the peace table. On the other hand, I mean, who is going to run the schools? Who is going to change the curriculum? Who's going to be in charge? Who's going to do that? Who's going to change the political culture? I have no idea. I certainly have no uh, concrete suggestions along those lines. I mean, in fact, I'm inclined to say that the problem is far more complicated than even that, because we also have to take the Israeli side into account. And that doesn't at all require backing down and being disgusted and appalled at the October 7th terrorist invasion by Hamas and what uh, those people did inside of Israel, which deserves to be thoroughly condemned. But it is also the case that before that happened, uh, Israeli public opinion was pretty firmly against any kind of deal or against making any kind of move that would kind of change the dynamic on the ground in either Gaza or the West Bank. 
And after enduring the massacre of October 7th and then this bloody war since, where missiles continue to be lobbed at Israeli cities just about every day, you know, we hear all about the, the terrible damage and deaths that Israel's inflicting on Gaza, which is true. But throughout the whole thing, uh, even with the Hamas leadership that has been killed, missiles continue to be fired all the time. And if it weren't for uh, the missile defense shield, the Iron Dome, uh, you would be seeing a lot more casualties and destruction in Israel proper. So it's not at all realistic, I think, to think that, well, a, a country that was quite content to not try to sit down at any peace negotiations with the Palestinians before October 7th is not going to be more inclined to do so after this. And, you know, the reality of things is is pretty bleak for anyone who wants a, a kind of resolution to this conflict over there. The fact is that the settlement project uh, has been going on now for a couple of generations. It has huge stakeholders in Israeli society and political system. It has parties that are devoted to the interests as they understand them of the settlers. You also have a lot of ultra-Orthodox Jews who are not technically settlers. They're living in Israel proper, but they're very far to the right and have their own parties and preferences. And then you have a, a substantial Arab population, and the largest center-right party, the Likud, is hell-bent on insisting it will never sit in a government with those Arab parties. And that means that in the very narrowly divided uh, parliamentary system that you have in Israel, that basically the natural position of Israeli public opinion, which is, is right of center by this point, very much so, if that block wins elections and it refuses to join in a coalition with the Arab parties, it immediately must tilt further right to find coalition partners, which is how we got the current Netanyahu government now, which has these extremists in it who say things like that Israeli policy should be ethnic cleansing of Gaza. So, I mean... All of that is about the Israelis, and of course, I concede everything you said about the the mess of Palestinian public opinion in Gaza, but also to some extent, not quite as harshly uh, in the West Bank. It's actually the other way around, Damon. I think, based on a public opinion poll, who knows how accurate it really was, and there's a war on and so forth, but it was so interesting that... Palestinians who lived in the West Bank were more supportive of Hamas than Palestinians who live in Gaza. Well, you know, maybe that's a function of, uh, you know, not having to live with exactly. the devil. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, and, you know, they, they've been living under the PA, the Palestinian Authority, for a very long time. The governance is not particularly uh, free of corruption or efficient or well-organized. So, and it's run by yeah. an 88-year-old man serving his, what is it, 17th year in a four-year term. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, a, when that's what your your entire, you know, last generation of experience is, you know, the, the alternative might seem appealing, although I, I hardly think the lived reality of it would end up being exactly that. Yeah. Bill Galston, um, so Israel um, 
assassinated this high-ranking Hamas official. He said in the very recent past, quote, this is the guy who was killed. He said, our job is to keep the Palestinians radicalized. Most would settle in a moment for peace. We need to keep them angry. But uh, Israel has killed high-ranking Hamas officials before and uh, doesn't seem to slow them down. Or um, is that too pessimistic? I don't know. The old image of the Hydra comes to mind as a strategy for temporarily weakening Hamas. It has some merit as a strategy for undermining or destroying Hamas. I think it has much less merit, if any. Could I ask you to elaborate on that just for a sec, Bill? I mean, you know, the, the Israeli government has said its goal is to destroy Hamas. Now, I think what they mean by that is the military capacity of Hamas. Do you think that's possible? It depends on how you define it. But given the fact that most of Hamas's military capacity is now penned up in a small portion of the Gaza Strip, it is conceivable to me that by the end of the operation, they will have either killed or arrested the Hamas leadership, the military wing of Hamas in Gaza, and will have interned or killed most of the fighters. If that's what they have in mind, and if they are, if they are prepared to resist pressure from the outside world, to stop the operation before they want to, in that very narrow technical sense, I think they probably can do it, or at least 95% of it. What the morning after looks like is a different question altogether. And as many commentators have pointed out, you can kill people, but you can't kill an idea, you know, to which I would add, you can't kill passions with bullets. In fact, you can so inflame them. You, you can. And in these circumstances, that's almost certainly what's happening. So let me divide the question. Is the goal attainable, as I said, in the narrow technical sense? I think probably yes. Question two, if having attained your goal, you are any closer to long-term security for the state of Israel, I think that's a different question altogether. Uh, Nick, let's just close with this. You you have this piece, Five Big Obstacles to Israel-Palestine Peace. And even though you call them big obstacles, the, the tone of your piece was actually fairly upbeat, considering I maybe that's just because I'm so grim about all this. But you mentioned, uh, I think you mentioned the possibility of holding elections in Gaza after the war, but just not permitting Hamas to participate. I think that elections in uh, Israel-Palestine, I guess, among the Palestinians, uh, so both West Bank and Gaza, you mentioned how uh, Mahmoud Abbas, who is in charge of the Palestinian Authority, uh, is old, unpopular, and was supposed to leave office in 2009 and just kept on staying. Um, so he recently, I saw, had, uh, I was 88% opposed among Palestinians, um, and broadly defined, so they're one of the obstacles that I identified after the first one being Hamas and where Hamas clearly does not want negotiated with peace with Israel, that they launched the October 7th attacks to try to get a massive Israel response and to, in their hopes, to try to spark a regional war, which has not happened in part because of U.S. efforts to deter it. 
but they don't want peace. They would actively prefer conflict. And a lot of the current Israeli government is also that case, that it was um, not only do you have some of the people that Netanyahu brought into the government uh, were for a, from a, a previously banned movement, previously banned party that got banned for supporting terrorism, uh, the man who's currently the national security minister uh, who is calling for ethnic cleansing in Gaza, um, also celebrated the Israeli assassin who killed Yitzhak Rabin, uh, who made the uh, Oslo Accords. That was a first big step forward with peace with the Palestinians. Um, and celebrated a Israeli terrorist named Baruch Goldstein. Uh, so they also do not want peace, but there is an easy way to get rid of them, uh, which is Israeli elections. And uh, Netanyahu seems to be at least currently unpopular, and he's managed to uh, survive politically before. So I can't say that he's definitely done, but he is widely blamed for not securing Israel and for failing at his most important duty. But the third obstacle identified, and this is one I think that Bill was uh, partially getting at, is Palestinian hopelessness, Palestinian despair, that if there is no possible glimmer of future hope for them, that that will make things much easier for recruitment of uh, radicals for uh, Hamas, or even if Hamas is destroyed, um, other groups like Islamic Jihad or any successor organization to recruit new people and to rebuild uh, their military capacity, even if Israel manages to severely degrade it now. But if they can remove Hamas, not as an idea, not as an organization, but as the governing entity of Gaza, they could then potentially move towards something where there are Palestinian elections for both the West Bank and Gaza, in which Hamas uh, would not be allowed to run. Otherwise, I don't know how the Israelis would agree to it, and we could easily end up back in the same situation. But there was that glimmer of optimism, because I also am very pessimistic about it, but I did try to include some optimism in my article because some of these obstacles looked very stuck and they are now wobbling. Um, so you had the uh, Netanyahu government, for example, wasn't just, was opposed to Hamas, of course, but also somewhat encouraged them. That, for example, facilitated some money from Qatar getting to Hamas because then they could keep the Palestinians divided and then they could argue that there was nobody to negotiate with. And the Palestinians in Gaza have been living under Hamas authoritarian rule since 2007 when Hamas took over by force and they have not allowed any sort of popular sentiment since. And while there have been some polls that show a lot of Palestinian support for Hamas now, uh, one of the best ones of the region called Arab Barometer happened to be doing surveys just before the October 7th attack and found that about two thirds of uh, Gazans said that um, they think Hamas is corrupt and almost three quarters uh, had a negative opinion about them um, to the extent that the pollsters can get at it, um, can get at that question. And so while there is clearly a element of rally around the flag, or I guess it's when you're being bombed, uh, say that you support the only people who are actually shooting back. But that is not something that we should think of as permanent. So I am, at least I'm very cautiously hopeful, and this might very well not work because it is an incredibly complicated situation, but that if uh, Hamas and uh, the Netanyahu government are in different ways obstacles to peace, that this could potentially lead to both of them being removed and then new opportunities for both Israeli and Palestinian leadership that will be more interested in moving forward with peace. And for given the incredible destruction and the suffering of civilians in Gaza, the to the extent there's a justification for Israel's uh, efforts, it is to remove Hamas and then after that, have something else that they could potentially work with, that they can potentially negotiate with, or one that wants to teach a 
um, element of peaceful coexistence, even if uneasily so, rather than a one, a vision committed to destroying all of Israel as Hamas is. But if the Palestinians are not given first a lot of reconstruction, so money from thinking especially uh, Gulf Arab oil states and uh, US, Europe, but a lot of reconstruction money, um, and that'll create a lot of jobs and to lead towards some sort of political opportunity for them where they can elevate people who would like to negotiate, who are not like Hamas and who seek an element of peace and peaceful coexistence with Israel. And then there's still the problem of the settlers in the West Bank, which there are now about 450,000 and they have the West Bank divided where there are special roads that only they can go on. Uh, while I disagree with the claims of uh, all of Israel as uh, using the word apartheid, if you look at the West Bank, it looks awfully similar to South African apartheid with Palestinians inside where basically Bantu stands having to cross uh, checkpoints just to get from community to community, just to get to their jobs sometimes. Um, and there have been a decent amount of violence by uh, West Bank settlers. And the U.S. has taken a small step towards uh, trying to address that by saying that uh, West Bank settlers who are involved in violence can't get visas to the U.S. But that is a very small move. So if, and this is a big if, but if Israel can remove Hamas as the governing entity of Gaza, and then if Israelis vote in a government that would like to move forward towards peace, then we have to take on the incredibly difficult task of governing Gaza afterwards, and hopefully Palestinian elections, and also trying to deal with the problem of the settlers in the West Bank. And while I'm still pessimistic that that can work out, there is at least this glimmer of opportunity that hasn't been there for the last 16, 17 years, really longer. But especially since Hamas took over, one thing, the way that I've been looking at it that I think a lot of people prefer not to, but is that as long as Hamas is in control of Gaza and the October 7th attack demonstrated that they prioritize killing Jews more than they prioritize the safety and security of the Palestinian people or economic advancement of the Palestinian people. And so if that's their priority, if they are, as long as they're there, there can't be peace. But if they're gone, then uh, there is a chance that it could return to another uh, kind of bad situation with an Israeli-Egypt blockade, and is both of them doing the blockade, but a blockade that just then festers and keeps going. And that would lead us to a situation that is similar to what it was before the war or worse that led to the October 7th attacks and now here. But that will take a big international push because both the Israelis and uh, very, at least parts of the Israelis and parts of the Palestinians will be reluctant to do that. Some of them will be outright resistant to it. And otherwise, we end up in a similar situation or worse. Well, after the months of terrible, agonizing news from that part of the world, a glimmer of hope is better than none. So we will take it. Thank you for that. We will move now to our final segment, the highlight or low light of the week. And let's start this week with Damon Linker. Well, um, I'm sort of notorious here uh, on the podcast for being a maximal skeptic about trying to get Trump uh, through legal means. And the most recent uh, uh, example of this is, of course, the uh, what I've been calling the 14th Amendment gambit, which uh, it looks like uh, the Trump people have now asked the Supreme Court to weigh in on about the Colorado Supreme Court's decision. And on that subject, I actually want to point to something that I only in the 
last few days, came across my desk, and it's a Substack post by someone who's been a guest on the podcast here, Steve Vladek, University of Texas law professor who has a Substack titled One First. I'm not exactly sure what the meaning of, of the title is there, but he wrote a very good post uh, on December 21st titled The Law and High Politics of Disqualifying President Trump which takes a a very good and I think an unusually nuanced look at uh, how difficult this decision, uh, assuming the court takes this case, which I can't imagine they won't, uh, how difficult it's going to be for the court to kind of wend its way through this without it blowing up in one of about half a dozen ways. Uh, It's a very, I think, even-handed and fair analysis, and it ends up with Vladek taking the position that the court, for its own institutional sake, should probably punt on the question of whether Trump can be disqualified under the 14th Amendment. And he makes, I think, a very compelling, again, a compelling case. But then again, of course, I would think that since that tends to be where I come down, though, through a different series of arguments. But Vladek has has led me uh, to, to reconsider some of my thinking along these lines, maybe in favor of his. And in any case, I think uh, our listeners will uh, learn a lot and uh, appreciate the reasoning in that post by Steve Vladek. Okay, thank you. Linda Chavez. Well, I'm going to recommend a piece that is a very, very hard read, but I think it's important for people to read it. It was actually in the New York Times this week, and it was by Jeffrey Gettleman, Anat Schwartz, Adam Sella, who were the authors, and it's called Screams Without Words, How Hamas Weaponized Sexual Violence on October 7th. Uh, It's the result of a Times investigation into the pattern of rape, mutilation, and extreme brutality against women in the attacks on Israel. And I recommend that people read it because I think we do need to face this issue. The attacks on Israel were not just um, horrific for the killings that took place, uh, for the Jew hatred that Hamas uh, exhibits, but also the hatred of women. And I really believe that we have to come to terms with that. And what has been so distressing in terms of some of the American left's response to the attacks on October 7th was the willingness of so many to disregard the plain evidence that there was an unbelievable use, uh, not just of rape, but of horrific mutilation of women uh, in this attack. And so uh, it's sort of with a heavy heart. It's certainly not um, the kind of thing you want to start the new year with. But I think until we come face to face with what was done on October 7th and the scar that this has left on the Israeli psyche, we can't fully understand what's taking place uh, in the war uh, in Gaza right now. Thanks, Linda. I have to confess that I saw, of course, saw the story, but I haven't read it yet. I just, every time I went to read it, I thought, well, now's not a good time because I'll get too upset. And I kept putting it off, but thank you. All right, Bill Galston. I don't know whether these are highlights or lowlights, but they are developments that I think need to be underscored. One foreign, the other domestic. I wrote this week about testimony from frontline soldiers in Ukraine 
that they are literally running out of ammunition. We're not talking about depleting stockpiles. We're talking about soldiers who not only can't go on offense, but really can't adequately defend themselves because they don't have they don't have the missiles, they don't have the howitzer shells to do the job. And meanwhile, while Kiev burns, Washington fiddles. And uh, I personally think it's a disgrace. But my disgrace plus $1.59 will get me a very small cup of coffee at 7-Eleven. The other development that I want to highlight is what might be called the dog that didn't bark at the Federal Reserve Board. The minutes of the December meeting were just released. A lot of optimists expected some indication of a timetable for rate cuts in 2024. There was nothing of the sort. And the report was much more cautionary in tone than I think a lot of the optimists in recent weeks had been expecting, and for good reason. And if people were unduly pessimistic about the economy in 2023, they may have gone over to the other end of of unreasonable optimism about 2024. We shall see, of course, but, uh, you know, Alan Greenspan coined a deathless phrase, irrational exuberance, and I think we got pretty close to it in the fall. Uh, And there will be a reckoning, I fear. Bill, I think it's safe to say that regular listeners to Beg to Differ do not uh, come here for irrational exuberance. Uh, Especially, for it. <laughs> Especially for me. All right. <laughs> Nicholas Grossman. All right. So I realize when, when I've been on the show before, I think I've recommended a, a TV show. And so my highlight is uh, the show Slow Horses on Apple Plus, uh, uh, which I, I think is great and is um, also a, a great lead part for Gary Oldman, um, who uh, it's just it's really uh, fantastic. And I, I don't want to recommend more, uh, give anything away about it, spoil anything, except that I, what, one thing I found so interesting cross-culturally is that it's about MI5 and it is very much a spy show, whereas uh, TV shows in America about the FBI are cop shows. And uh, that, so I just thought that juxtaposition was interesting given that those two are, while not identical agencies, are often discussed as uh, kind of their equivalent of each other. Can I interrupt you real quick because I have sure. watched the show? And don't you have the sense when you're, Gary Oldman is brilliant, of course, but don't you have the sense when you're watching it, please just take a shower. I mean, I can't stand looking at you anymore. Well, that's that's part of his shit. I know right? it that is. The character is so gross in so many different ways and uses that to throw people off. I know. Uh, whereas, you know, the very kind of uh, proper uh, formal uh, heads of MI5 end up using a type of coldness to throw people off. And so it's a kind of a different style. I think it, it works really well for for the character. Um, and then for uh, a low light, I'm doing a similar one as Bill, which is that uh, the I find the Ukraine thing extremely frustrating. Uh, one, because it the stakes are so high and the cost benefit has been so good to the United States, by which I mean uh, the Ukrainians are um, getting, ha- have been able to uh, stop and partially push back the Russian military uh, with America's contribution has been 
equipment that is worth a fraction of one year's military budget. The total is about 10, maybe 15% of one year's US military budget of the value of it. And it's mostly old equipment that we kind of wanted to replace anyway. And the money for replacing it mostly goes to American companies. So a line I can't take credit for, but, and I wish I remember who said it, but was that uh, the United States doesn't really give people cash. We give them credit cards. We give them gift cards to American companies. And I thought that was a really good way of thinking about it. So it's uh, economically beneficial too, and it's been extremely beneficial for the Ukrainians and has not required a uh, single uh, US military, uh, single troop, single uh, US military personnel to be put into combat, and yet has been very successful. And it seems like uh, such, a, a, such a mistake, an own goal, an unforced error to not fund them. And the reason especially why I find it so frustrating is because the discussion in Congress has been lumping this together, Ukraine together, uh, with uh, border security, Israel and Taiwan, all of which are in America's national interest, all of which are national security interests. And uh, to see, so to the extent I'll, I'll recommend a piece, I think David Frum in The Atlantic did a really good job with this, of the Republicans don't seem to be, at least in the House, don't seem to be trying to get things they want regarding the border in order to then get to yes on helping Ukraine. Instead, they seem to mostly be using the border as an excuse to get to no when it comes to helping Ukraine. And so we are potentially heading into a situation where the United States makes it easier for uh, Russia to facilitate this strategy of bombing Ukrainian cities, hitting civilian targets on purpose, to try to exhaust Ukrainian air defense missiles, and then to really try to pound them into submission. And the US can, without much effort, do a decent amount to counter that, and also do quite a bit to handle the overwhelming numbers that are coming uh, to the border, and that we might end up in a situation where Republicans block that, prevent the things, at least some of the things that would help the border that they supposedly care about, and also uh, prevent it from helping Ukraine. So we get this thing where we should have this consensus on major issues. Everybody gets something that they think is important and also maybe has to compromise on something that where they disagree on the approach or don't think it's important. And instead, what it looks like we might be headed towards is getting neither. And that is uh, both bad for the US in terms of various interests, bad for US partners, good for Russia, good for Putin. And that means, I think, overall bad and very frustratingly so. Indeed, dysfunction by definition. All right, thank you for that. I want to take us all back. This is a low light, but it requires going back to the year 2000 when a man named Thabo Mbeki won the presidency of South Africa. And I remember watching this and being amazed that this elected leader of a major country denied that HIV causes AIDS. And he stuck with this belief, and he cut support for programs, for example, that had provided antiviral medications that would prevent the uh, spread of the disease to newborns. And he suggested herbal cures like garlic, beetroot, and lemon juice. And I remember thinking, boy, you know, that, that's a shame that a, that a country uh, would uh, have such a leader. And of course, it was just a few short years later that the president of the United States presided over the completely shambolic response to COVID-19, recommending that people take quack cures like hydroxychloroquine. Well, there was a new study that just came out this week that analyzed data from six countries over just a four-month period in 2020, 
and that concludes that the use of hydroxychloroquine was responsible for 17,000 deaths, unnecessary deaths. Um, but also, that's just not the end of it, that, you know, you had Donald Trump standing up in front of cameras and suggesting that people inject bleach. Nope, that wasn't the end of it, because Ron DeSantis, in his bid uh, for the presidency, appointed as, his, as the Surgeon General of Florida a doctor uh, whose name is Joseph Ladapo, who has issued a bulletin this week recommending against using mRNA vaccines. He says that the shots, which is a widely debunked conspiracy theory, that the shots could contaminate patients' DNA. This has been described as scientific nonsense by Dr. Ashish Jha and others. So here we are in 2024, a pivotal year, and uh, it isn't just Trump that the Republican Party has become a party that promotes charlatans, frauds, con men, quacks of every variety, and they cause actual deaths. And it is beyond belief. I think it is part of this general problem of how people are getting information. The information revolution that was ushered in by the smartphone uh, has had many baleful consequences and uh, and this is this is part of it the sense that people that they can get information anywhere and they seek to get it from unreliable sources and then uh, act on it so that is one of our challenges going forward is how to combat that kind of nonsense uh, that is so destructive and dangerous With that, I would like to thank our guest, Professor Nicholas Grossman, and our regular panel. Our our producer is Jim Swift, and our sound engineer is Jonathan Seary. And Beg to Differ will be back next week, as every week.